Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 33 of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Shasodia. Hi, Raj. Hey, Timothy. Good to be with you again. This week, we've got a, a very special guest, one of the pioneers in the whole field of conscious capitalism, though he might not have called himself that at the time. He was sort of an unconscious conscious capitalism, ca conscious capitalist, but he paved the way for a lot of the businesses that followed. Jeffrey Hollander, we're really glad to have you today. Thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. My pleasure. Now, Jeffrey is, among other things, known as the co-founder and former CEO of Seventh Generation, which he built into the really one of the leading brands in the whole idea of natural products, particularly natural products for the home. And he's also um, a co-founder of uh, Sustain Natural, a developer of um, sustainable feminine care products for women. I think you did that with your da daughter, which is... a uh, a really wonderful thing to think about. Um, most recently, he is um, on a number of different boards, but most importantly, the co-founder and board chair of the American Sustainable Business Council, a coalition of over 200,000 business leaders uh, committed to progressive public policy. He's also the author of several books, uh, one of which was particularly dear to us, The Responsibility Revolution, How the Next Generation of Businesses Will Win and planet home. So with that, um, Jeffrey, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Again, happy to be here. So Jeffrey, one of the things that's always interesting to us is understanding a little bit about the journey that got you into this business space. And um, tell us a little bit about the what got you to seventh generation, which sort of became a pivotal a business in trying to show that you could do well and do good. And you're one of the early pioneers in that. How did that happen? Well, there were really two influences. One was uh, the Vietnam War and being an activist, even at the age of 17 and 18, against the war in Vietnam, really built a sensibility for me in my life about the importance of speaking up on issues that you think are important and the obligation we have to society to make sure that we do everything we can to keep it headed in the right direction. So that was sort of a context that influenced my earlier years, but more specifically, it was the first book I wrote, How to Make the World a Better Place, A Beginner's Guide, where I took a survey of all the things that one could do to make a positive contribution in the world and came across what was the predecessor to seventh generation, a mail order catalog called Renew America. Mm. Oh, brilliant. And at that point, um, it doesn't necessarily seem natural. You would definitely go into business. So I'm just curious, at what point did you sort of pivot and sort of say, hey, listen, business can be a vehicle where we can make a difference this way. 
Well, I grew up in a household where my father was a businessman and ultimately had a little venture capital firm that made investments in small companies. And uh, gee, I started a window washing company when I was 14. Uh. And uh, then I started my second business when I was uh, 19, 20, called the Skills Exchange of Toronto. I was a college dropout. I did not uh, thrive in the university environment and felt much more at home as a business person uh, out in the world getting stuff done. Ah, so really a bit of an entrepreneur at heart and by breeding, and that led to your thinking about this space. And how did you then start Seventh Generation? What's the story of how that actually started and what were some of the critical milestones as you built that business? Yeah, you know, I started with a co-partner, Alan Newman, who went on to start a beer company called Magic Hat, and he discovered this Renew America catalog that was struggling to survive, about to go out of business, selling energy and water conservation products. And uh, they were losing a lot of money and basically gave the catalog to him, which we renamed Seventh Generation and began to expand the focus of the portfolio of products that were being sold from just energy and water conservation to natural cleaning products and recycled paper products. And, uh, you know, we were hugely, hugely impacted by the 20th anniversary of Earth Day, where there was incredible attention on the environment. And we were really one of the few companies that were selling products that minimized people's adverse footprint on the planet. And so we got a lot of attention. We got four pages in People magazine, which was pretty astounding. And that really sort of caused us to grow from a million to seven million in our second and third year. Uh, And that growth unfortunately didn't continue. Mm. Uh, Tougher times were ahead, but we certainly were off to an exciting start. Just find it ironic that we're taping this on Earth Day today. So it's wonderful to hear that connection. Well, it is synchronicity. I know that is one of your favorite books, Jeffrey. It's on your list, right? So it's not ironic. I think it's really synchronicity that we should be speaking with you on this day. And uh, I think a lot of people do know about it, but just tell the genesis of the name Seventh Generation. That comes from the native tradition, right? It does. It comes from the Iroquois. And uh, we were lucky enough to have a young Native American woman who was working in our office, we had a contest to come up with a name for the business. And she suggested seventh generation, which is is derived from the saying in our every deliberation, we should consider the impact of our decisions on the next seven generations, which is a tall, tall order. Uh, And every ad agency we ever hired tried to convince us to change our name. They thought it was ridiculous we should be eco this or planet friendly that or green something. But we stuck with it because the name is so inspiring and has such a rich tradition and is something that we always strive to live up to. You know, the uh, Iroquois Confederacy is something I didn't know a lot about. And when we wrote the healing organization, we actually looked into it quite a bit. And there were so many things about that that were way ahead of its time, right? And, and the U.S. system of government really was 
largely based on the blueprint that they had shown, right? The three different uh, uh, branches of government. Uh, you have the kind of federal, you know, type of a structure that brought together these warring tribes and enabled them to live in peace. And I think one of the other interesting aspects was that they had a strong role for feminine energy in there, mm. right? The the chief of the Iroquois uh, confederacy was always a man, but always chosen by a council of mothers. <laughs> it's a it's, it's really a wonderful tradition, and I think still contains tremendous wisdom for us in the time we live in. And uh, we want to make sure that, that we take care to do what we can to preserve those traditions because they, they, you know, when you think about the whole notion of being conscious, uh, they have so much to teach us about what we need to be conscious of. And I think we've really been lucky to be able to borrow this tradition from them and hopefully share that wisdom with millions of people. Uh, and interestingly enough, Raj, I don't know whether you remember this, but uh, when we were growing seventh generation, we didn't have a director of corporate responsibility. We had a director of, of uh, consciousness, director of corporate consciousness. And ultimately, we had a second person who was the director of corporate responsibility, but the director of corporate consciousness was our sort of internal wisdom leader who really explored these traditions to see how we could really richly apply them to the business. I think it's also really interesting that we get into this topic right now, because when we talk about diversity and people start to talk about um, it as sort of a socioeconomic phenomena, what I think is another angle is really talking about what you might call cognitive diversity or different ways of thinking or bringing in different traditions and different ways of thinking into a team. I think this is a great example of, you know, trying to honor these traditions and these different ways of thinking and trying to bring those to the table so we make better decisions. <laughs> you know, ultimately this is all about making better decisions and how do we get enough diversity around the table about ideas and thinking so that we in fact make good conscious decisions. And I'm wondering, Jeffrey, along those lines, can you think of a couple of times when that uh, chief consciousness officer and, and uh, you know, had an influence on a business decision that went a different way because you had that voice at the table? Yes, there were many, many, and uh, Gregor Barnum was his name, and he unfortunately passed away, but he was a very close friend of mine. And I was a, a real beneficiary of that wisdom, uh, and his push quite lovingly but relentlessly to expand my own consciousness, largely around the impact I had on others in the company. And I'll just give you one example. Uh, not surprisingly, as a serial entrepreneur, uh, I have a lot to say and I would spend a lot of time talking in meetings and he helped me understand my impact, which was really crowding out other voices that I spent so much time talking and not enough time listening that I was in some ways holding back other members of our team from flourishing in a way that they hoped to do so. So I ended up with a little note on the front of my computer that says, ask 
more questions provide less answers. Hmm. And that was a really important part of my own development to learn, as uh, Joseph Jaworski talks about in Synchronicity, Mm. that in some ways you need to lead from behind rather than lead from the front. You need to make sure that everyone is moving in the right direction, but not necessarily following your direction. Mm. Uh, That's brilliant. And uh, it's a great example. And I'm wondering, as you were, you know, you were one of the pioneers. So there was this, um, I guess, I guess that there's always a constant tension, isn't there? I mean, there still is between doing well and doing good. And it's not a either or, but it is an and. And in that and, there is sometimes a dynamic tension that occurs. <laughs> and I'm curious how you um, brought that sensibility of an entrepreneur who is driven by a higher purpose and driven by that desire to do good? What, what, how did you build that into your business model and, and, and the way of thinking in the business? Well, it was a constant journey uh, and a constant process of, of reevaluation and rediscovery. It's not a static thing. You know, it's not like mm-hmm. you write your vision and mission up on the wall and there it stays for all to see. It's really a a constant process of learning and a constant process of sort of redefining what we say is what the, what does the world most need that we are uniquely able to provide? That's the question that we keep asking ourselves. And that answer changes, changes over time, but it's a, it's a rich, rich question and it helped create a company that doesn't just sell green products, but if you like a green company, a company that embeds its values in its workplace, in the way it treats its community, in the way it treats its workers, in the way it develops its products. And we really need that systems holistic base approach to design businesses. And quite honestly, not enough businesses are designed that well. There are a lot of businesses that practice sustainability in a highly compartmentalized fashion rather than a systemic fashion that affects everything and all that they do. You know, Jeffrey, if you look at the long span of where you started and where we are today, uh, do you feel uh, hopeful? Do you feel uh, optimistic about how far we have come? Are we close to a tipping point? Uh, I know there's a sense of urgency about how much more we need to do and how quickly, but but how do you feel about the overall trajectory of of how things have evolved? Well, I have two sort of conflicting thoughts. On on the one hand, particularly for the work that we do with the American Sustainable Business Council, we couldn't be more excited at the opportunity we have to work with the Biden administration to make real progress, not incremental progress, but real progress in things like increasing the minimum wage in things like uh, putting a price on carbon, uh, beginning to deal seriously with things like plastic pollution. So that's really exciting. And we're putting a tremendous amount of energy to make sure we can accomplish as much as we can with the unique combination of a relatively enlightened administration and a House and Senate that, that, that share the Biden administration's perspective. But at the same time, I'm deeply worried that the notion of sustainability 
has failed to deliver the kind of change that's required to meet the social and environmental challenges that we face, not just in this country, but around the world. We're not doing enough. The steps that we've taken as sustainable businesses are too often about being less bad, creating less pollution, creating less waste, creating uh, less uh, soil erosion. What we really need is to focus on regeneration and repair. We need to rethink the way we do business so that business is really about leaving the world better off than it was before, not as I believe is mostly the case, slowing the rate at which we're deteriorating the planet. Well, I think that's such an interesting perspective because certainly when you start getting into the ESG debate and the idea that we're going to at least sort of have minimum standards, hopefully, for what a good citizen looks like, it's interesting because part of that measurement mentality comes from we have to identify the bad actors and call them out and punish them or at least make visible what they're doing. And on the other hand, what you're suggesting, which feels you know, really like the direction of travel is that this is a way to create more value in the world. And that, you know, this regenerative idea of business models is actually a tremendous innovation challenge and a tremendous opportunity for businesses to grow and find new ways of operating. And depending on which one of those hats you're wearing, (laughs) you're going to send a very different vibe and message to business leaders. Hey, this is a great opportunity. You take leadership in your industry, create value versus, you know, you better do this or else we're going to call you out and you're going to be, you know, called on the carpet for some of the things that that you're doing. Um, In what way is the, the council that you're working with really trying to step further and harder into that? that leading edge, this is a way to create value. This is a way for you to find innovative new business models where you can create competitive advantage for yourself. Well, there's several things we're doing and they revolve uh, around this notion of ESG disclosure and standards, as well as a really important idea around full cost accounting. So Mm. uh, full cost accounting is a way to capture the positive and negative externalities that businesses currently dump onto society. So an example would be an oil company that's responsible for a lot of CO2 emissions, but those CO2 emissions and the negative effect they bring aren't captured on the financial statements or balance sheets of that company. And uh, just to give you an example, uh, Harvard University studied 2000 companies they calculated that the negative impact through CO2 emissions for ExxonMobil is $100 billion a year that does not show up on their financial statements. So one of the hugely transformational things we can do is to insist that business capture these externalities so that really the companies that have a light, if not positive footprint are rewarded financially and economically because they will become more profitable and more successful. And that's coupled with a really interesting notion that the positive things that many companies do aren't captured. So if you have a building and you make an investment in putting new uh, energy efficient windows, 
you can add that to your balance sheet as a capital investment. But if you make an incredible investment in your own staff, in training them and developing them, in helping them to be more conscious, that doesn't appear anywhere. And that's a positive externality that should be captured on P&L statements and balance sheets. And I think by creating this new framework that the American Sustainable Business Council is advocating, we'll create a roadmap where companies doing the right thing get credit for what they're doing and companies that have a heavy footprint in terms of their negative externalities get a financial impact and if you like penalty. So the answer is we need both carrots and sticks. So are you working uh, at a policy level then to try to get those uh, requirements for reporting and uh, financial um, you know, the consequences of that, or is that a recommended thing at this point? No, we're working as, as hard as we can to begin to initiate that from a public policy perspective. I think the first step in that direction will be putting a price on carbon because climate change is such a pressing issue. But we want to make sure that people understand that that's not the end of the process. That's just the first step in beginning to get a clear picture of the impact that companies have on the planet and also society. We can't just be focused on the environment. We have to look at the impact of not paying people livable wages. Mm -hmm. People who don't receive livable wages are forced to depend upon the government for subsidies and food stamps. What does that mean? We as citizens are subsidizing businesses who don't pay their employees mm -hmm. fairly. That's not right. It shouldn't be the case. Companies should take care of their employees and should pay them a living wage so that we don't have to subsidize their operations. I love it. And I think that um, the, uh, the full cost accounting work that's coming out of Harvard and Oxford Business School working together to sort of create that framework is a really important one. And um, one of the things certainly on the Oxford side that they're working on that I'm familiar with is the whole idea of economics of mutuality, which um, I think tries to take that full cost accounting and say that there are sort of four areas of capital. There's financial capital, there's people capital, there's natural capital, and there's societal capital. And can we start to, in some way, enumerate what that capital looks like and start to have a balance sheet that starts to demonstrate what that might look like for a company if it was fully putting that in place with the hope that those companies, like you say, are the good actors are going to get higher valuations because people are going to look and in the long term, this company is doing the right things to be successful over the longer term and therefore ought to have a higher valuation. Yes. Um, is that the kind of area that, that you're, you're working when you talk about the full cost accounting? Are there some specific examples that you might push us towards? Or, Well, I think the work of George Sepharim at Harvard, uh, the Impact Weighted Accounts Project, which is yeah. uh, fascinating. And we have a great uh, webinar that ASBC did with him where he explains very concisely in an hour what his work is, 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 such a critical and important part of the roadmap that lies ahead of us. Mm. Uh, and it, you know, one of the challenges is when we talk about sustainability, we live in a world that doesn't have rules 
that actually support and encourage that kind of behavior. In many ways, we've designed our economic system to encourage businesses to externalize those negative impacts. And that is a real way in which businesses maximize their profits. So we need to change the rules of the game. And then one of the, the things that I really learned uh, at Seventh Generation is that it's wonderful to have the companies that are members of Conscious Capitalism mm. and ASBC and all of the great organizations like B-Lab that we have. But if we're really going to address the challenges we're facing, we need to change the rules of the game by which business is done. We can't simply depend upon these wonderful companies that are exceptions to the rules. Mm. And that's really what ASBC is about. It's changing the rules by which business gets done that I think is ultimately where we need to focus our energy and attention. Well, I love that because, you know, I'm, you know, last week we had a, a rollout of a thing called the Better Business Act here in the UK. Um, steps to have uh, company acts changed to include stakeholders and purpose as a part of the founding documents of an organization. Um, and in that process of being involved with that and, and trying to make the UK one of the best places in the world for purpose-driven businesses, we have gotten into this discussion of like, to change the rules, where's the leverage? Is the leverage really in having government uh, set up regulations or, and of course the and, but the emphasis uh, on the investment community of you know, so much of what businesses are doing is in response to what investors are looking for. And until we can start to have investors shift their framework and start to think about these businesses and what drives their returns, then it's gonna be very, very difficult to get the government to come along with that. Because if the investors are resisting and some of the businesses are resisting, Oh, that's a really tough place to be in the middle of. So I'm curious what you think about in terms of the investment community and them coming along on this journey. Yeah, I think about it more like a symphony than, uh, uh, you know, uh, a rock band. I think we need a lot of players because there's a critical role that the accounting profession plays in the accounting standards that govern the way businesses disclose their financial statements. There's an important role that the legal profession plays in the laws that either support or don't support this kind of behavior. And, you know, we also need to change the way people think. We need to change their consciousness. We need to change the frameworks that they use when they think about responsible business. They need to think about that in a different way. So I think we need to, to have a, a symphony or a chorus of a group of actors that are all rowing in the same direction. But I don't, I don't think anyone is gonna, gonna do it alone. Uh, I think regulation is really important. I, I'm afraid that we've seen that leaving business to do it on their own doesn't get us to where we need to go fast enough and far enough. So, you know, usually uh, businesses are fighting regulation. Uh, we have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of companies who are advocates of more regulation so that we have rules that guide us to behave in a way that really is sustainable, if not regenerative. 
Well, you know, the, the impact, I think, of the U.S. Uh, in this is enormous, right? I mean, we went from being the laggard in the world in, in many of these things. And now under this administration, I'm just looking at today's headlines, right? Joe Biden is committing to 50% reduction by 2030 in greenhouse gases, which is way more than any other country is, uh, is committing to. And for the U.S. now to take that leadership position, and and inspire other people to move along. I think that's it's, it's extraordinary, really, how much has turned around, how quickly here, right? Well, it's a reason to be optimistic. It's a reason after some tough years that we've just recently had to feel hopeful about the future. To to have a government uh, that really is is looking after all the people not just the ones that are writing checks to keep them reelected. And I really appreciate the way Biden and Harris have, 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 have embraced this notion of making the economy work for all people, mm-hmm. because it's not working for all people today. It's not working for, for far, far too many people. And for tackling head on issues like systemic racism that have plagued our country and plagued businesses. I mean, systemic racism is bad for business. It keeps incredibly qualified, capable talent out of the the labor pool. It doesn't give them the opportunities to participate. And again, going back to regulation, we're big advocates of having boards of directors mandatorily composed of a diverse group of women and uh, people of color, that shouldn't be up to the company. The company should have to have that diversity at its board, if not have a worker representative on that board. That kind of diversity will lead to better decisions, will lead to different decisions, will lead to more responsible and sustainable decisions. And that's a very specific policy objective that we're large advocates of. Well, I love that the, um, the councils put out uh, a report on what you call taking the high road companies, companies that are choosing to take the high road rather than the low road. And one of the compelling pieces in there, of course, is the business case for taking the high road. And it lays out, you know, that the, the motivation and inspiration of your workers, the turnover rates, the innovation rates and everything else are clearly correlated with this taking the high road kind of culture and approach to business. And yet, and yet, for thems that gets it, they get it and we're preaching to the choir in terms of our conscious capitalists kind of uh, audience. There's some group, let's say 20% of the businesses we're never going to reach because they're just, they're just they, they have a, a, a a point of view that's so in the Milton Friedman part of the world that they're never gonna never gonna come over. But winning that vital middle to get those businesses that are in the middle, that are looking at this from the outside and sort of saying, huh, something's happening. What are we gonna need to do to get that mindset and to get those leaders and particularly the CEOs and the boards to step into this and say, at least asking those questions from at least from a board point of view, like, what are you doing about this? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, part of it is research and part of it is education and influence. 
When uh, Credit Suisse did a study of thousands of companies, they found that having just one woman on the board significantly increased the profitability and returns per share that those companies made. That's compelling to me. It's like, gee, if there's a study of 2,000 companies and having a woman on the board improves the financial returns of those companies, why wouldn't you do it? Because it's going to have a positive effect. So we need to tell those stories. We need to do that research. We need to, to educate people around the business case. Because businesses will move either because they're forced to by regulation or because there's a really strong business case for doing so. Same business case for employee ownership. When you look at companies where there's significant employee ownership, there's better financial performance. When you look at companies that treat their employees better, that give them reasonable benefits and reasonable pay and, and really listen to them so that employees feel like they can be heard and that they can, can sort of bring them themselves as whole human beings to work, those companies perform better. So a lot of it is, is, is a process of education. And, you know, unfortunately, my father didn't learn to do business that way. My father learned to do business in an entirely different fashion. We need to re-educate those business leaders so that they understand that doing the right thing in many cases, like having a high road business, will make you uh, more competitive and have a positive effect on your financial analysis. Yeah, and I think the point you made earlier, Jeffrey, that you know the, the financial numbers we see today are really a mirage because they are hiding the real cost and in some cases the real benefits of, of doing business. So once we put those requirements in place, you know, some of these companies are going to look terrible. And investors, even under the same lens, investors will not flock to them in the way they've been flocking in the past, because now you're seeing, you're seeing the real picture, you know. And I'm looking at another study that's just uh, announced today that the cost of climate change in the, on the economy is uh, shrinking the uh, global economic output by $23 trillion a year by 2050. Right? So if you just look at the net present value of, of all of that, that we are staring at, purely from an economic sense, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's imperative that we do what we have to do to alleviate those, those outcomes, right? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the business and financial case for mitigating climate change couldn't be clear. The challenge is that there's a lot of fossil fuel-based companies that will have a challenging time making that transition. And we have to figure out how to help them make that transition. They're not just gonna go away overnight. Those jobs are jobs that have to be either evolved or replaced in the renewable energy industry. And we need to figure out the path for them to get from where they are today to where they need to be to, to obtain a more responsible, sustainable future. And the problem is that they're spending hundreds, if not billions of dollars to fight against this change. Mm. And to me, the heart of the problem is our political system that is causing us to, to lose our democracy to money in politics. We've got to take money out of politics. Citizens United is one of the worst legal decisions that the Supreme Court ever made. We've got to overturn Citizens United. And we've got to have a democracy 
where it really comes down to one person, one vote, not one person and their $100 million against someone who, who, who just has a vote. That's an unfair game to play. The person who's making that $100 million donation is going to have more influence. And often that influence is holding us back from the future that makes so much financial sense. So again, I'll say it, money out of politics is critical. And you know, one of the things that was, was really exciting when Seventh Generation was sold to Unilever is that Unilever has a policy that's very enlightened. No money spent on the political process at all. They don't think that's the way business should behave. Have a voice, speak your mind, talk to legislators, but don't try to buy their vote. You know, I think that's a key point, Jeffrey. You know, if you, if you think back to 1989 when the Berlin Wall came down, and I believe Timothy was actually in Berlin that day, <laughs> it was a really uh, an important turning point, right, in our recent history because it was the end of one debate. And you had the victory, in a way, of, of democracy and capitalism over communism and socialism or that mindset. Uh, but then if you look at what's happened in the succeeding 30-plus years, Democracy and capitalism, which we kind of assumed were joined at the hip, have kind of diverged, right? And now we're seeing that capitalism in many ways seems to be hurting democracy. And I think that's our biggest challenge is to bring those two things back together, that they work best when they work together, right? Capitalism and democracy. And I think Joe Biden has identified that as well. In a way, we have to make the case on the world stage that free societies are also the most prosperous and dynamic societies, right? So again, converging democracy and capitalism back together, I think is a, is a key part of this. Yes, and, and you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, am I a capitalist? And the answer is yes, but we practice, as you said so correctly, Raj, different types of capitalism. And we now practice a type of capitalism where business through the way it generates profits and its ownership structure funnels huge amounts of money into the pockets of a very limited number of people. That's not good for our society. The concentration of wealth that we have in America and around the world is bad. I mean, it's bad because the middle class and lower class doesn't have the disposable income to buy products the way we would like them to. But it's also uh, a terrible motivator when we see business not sharing the wealth and the value they create with all of their stakeholders. That includes the environment, that includes communities they operate in, that includes employees. And it's, it's one of the reasons why I'm such a big advocate of employee ownership, mm. because I think that makes capitalism work better. And I think that also leads to better democracy. If you have three jobs and two kids, you don't have time to participate in democracy. You don't have time to participate in your local community. That's not sustainable and it's not healthy. We need to get people earning a livable wage so that they can participate in our democracy. They can make their voice known and they can make sure that uh, we don't only have half our country participating in elections. Well, I think that's a, you know, it's, it's amazing because there's a theme now that runs through at least three of our last five podcasts. We had uh, Zainab Tan on talking about the good job strategy. 
and uh, her approach to how we create good jobs in the future. Um, and then last week, we had the CEO of PayActive on talking about the financial well-being of the two-thirds of American workers who are hourly workers and, you know, who are, um, for whom a livelihood is a real issue of survival, not an issue of, of a luxury uh, of something that they can have. So increasingly, we've got a lot of attention coming from a lot of directions on the fact that two-thirds of the American population has less than $1,000 in savings, and that's not viable. And yet, um, as we get into the politics and political um, options, it's almost like that's a third rail. Nobody's coming around and sort of saying, hey, you know, our society is going to fall apart if we don't address this issue, because it works on both sides of the aisles. The people who are for the first time in a generation that's growing up saying, we don't believe our children will have a better future from us. They're white and they're African-Americans. They're Latinos, they're Asians. They, they, they come from many different sectors. And that lack of faith in business and in the economy to really deliver um, a, a livelihood, an ability to live well in this society is critical, is, is critical. And I'm just curious how you or how the council starts to address that kind of issue where we're, we're really saying, hey, we've got to do something for these two-thirds of Americans who are right on this borderline all the time between being able to, to, to live, let alone live well. Yeah. Well, it's why we're such big advocates for a living wage. Uh, you know, we, we have a situation in, in America where tipped workers in restaurants in most states earn just a little bit over $2 an hour. Uh, no one, no one can survive on that. And a $7 plus minimum wage only ensures that you will live in poverty for your entire life. So we need to change those rules. We need to make sure that at a minimum, people are making a livable wage, that, that, that they're not living, you know, one uh, medical problem or one car accident away from bankruptcy. And that's the reality, as you said, most people are living on the edge of disaster. That does not create a society where people are thriving. That doesn't create a society where there's well-being. That doesn't create a workforce that is creative, innovative, and productive. And we need to help businesses understand mm. that, that the way in which they capture value for a small group of shareholders is not in their long-term interest. It really will not only hurt their business, but it will hurt our future and the future of our children and our grandchildren. And again, do the education, make the business case, share that wisdom with as many people as possible, but also make sure that we change the rules of the game so that people can't pay $2 an hour to anybody anywhere in this country. So I guess the question I would ask is, you know, this is only going to get worse with the advent of AI and more robotics and automation. It's the, um, the, the non-skill level work is going to get more and more difficult. We're going to have more and more debates about what universal income means or what it means to have some kind of societal safety net. Who, when you look out at the world, do you think is pushing the systems thinking 
that sort of says, hey, over the next 10 or 20 years, we're going to go through a massive societal change in life as we know it in the U.S. Um, who do you think is sort of taking the high ground on those kind of policy thinking, the policy issues? Well, there's a lot of partners that we work with at the council, and uh, it really depends on the issue. It, 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 it could be an environmental advocacy group like Greenpeace, mm -hmm. or it could be even, uh, there's a wonderful not-for-profit consulting firm in the UK, where, where I believe you are, called Forum for the Future, that really tries to embed systems thinking in the corporate strategy of their clients. And when you look at their clients, they have probably uh, uh, some of the most enlightened businesses that are uh, operating on the planet. And it is a critical discipline. I mean, I think about systems thinking all the time. I think that if children in the first grade started learning about systems thinking, started to learn about the unintended consequences of their actions, started to learn about the interrelationship of all the things that are on the planet, they would behave differently. It's not that, that people are necessarily bad. They don't see the unintended consequences of their behavior. And I think this is even true at some companies. Some companies just don't see the negative consequences of paying people $7 an hour as a wage don't see what that does to the fact that that mom or that dad doesn't have time because they've got two other jobs to read to their children, to help their children with homework. That creates a negative impact on our future and uh, our society. Uh, so it's, you know, it's this, it's this multi-leg stool of, of education, of making the business case of public policy and, uh, you know, I think the, the exciting news is that the council has a couple hundred thousand companies mm. that have bought into this perspective on the world. It's not like there's a handful. Mm. There, is, there is a huge, huge movement of, of generally speaking, small and medium-sized companies uh, who can't take advantage, in some cases, of the types of things that allow big multinationals to, for example, avoid taxes. I mean, mm -hmm. that's a whole other part of the system. Mm -hmm. it's, it's simply not fair to have a company that has trucks running on highways, but they're not paying taxes to rebuild those highways. That is a game that's rigged for a handful of our multinational companies. We need to unrig that game and make sure that all companies pay their fair share of taxes that all companies contribute to the education system, the police and the fire department, building roads, supporting our infrastructure. Beautiful, beautiful. On a slightly lighter note, I'm curious about what kind of uh, entrepreneurial coach you were when you were working with your daughter and helping her set up a, a new business along, along these lines. How, how did that work for you? As a father of a daughter, I'm just fascinated by that. <laughs> Well, it was a really interesting challenge. Uh, it, it, it is a unique challenge to try to coach your family member. Uh, and I think, you know, in some ways uh, we were quite successful because over the six years that we worked together, 
I started out as the CEO. And by the end of those six years, we changed roles so that my daughter had become the CEO. And I was really just an advisor to her. Um, I probably was too hard in some cases and too easy in other cases. Mm. Uh, but she, uh, she really grew into becoming a wonderful uh, leader, an, uh, an inspiring leader, a compassionate leader. And I think a lot of the focus that I, that I had in my conversations with her mm. was, was around what it means to be a good leader. Uh, mm. a humble leader, uh, a leader that is really aware of what you don't know as much as what you do know. And it was uh, an incredible gift and a privilege to be able to share some of the knowledge that I had accumulated over 40 or 50 years in business with her and to really watch her turn around and take off and lead the business on her own. Oh, beautiful. I love that. I love that. I know my kids are listening. <laughs> I think the uh, young generation uh, in general is more purpose-driven, more idealistic, more holistic in their thinking, would you say? Absolutely. I, I, you know, one of the, I, I teach social entrepreneurship at New York University at the Stern Business School. And it's my absolute favorite thing to do because it makes me the most hopeful. Mm. When I see you know, not just the passion that these kids have for social entrepreneurship, but their perspective on this is the only way they want to do business. Mm -hmm. They don't have a desire to do business in the traditional fashion. They only want to do business in a way that is sustainable, if not regenerative. That's, that's incredibly hopeful. And they're passionate and they're creative. And you know, I think that it is a unique opportunity to be able to embed things like full cost accounting into their thinking mm. so that they can design businesses differently, so that they can think about product development in an entirely different way that minimizes those externalities that are negative and maximizes those positive externalities. Mm. Love it. Love it. If people want to know more, uh, Jeffrey, about the work you're doing, um, where can they go to get more information on that? Where would you direct them? Yeah, the best place to go is uh, the American Sustainable Business Council website, uh, which has the business case for high road businesses, which has the business case for putting a price on carbon. So it's a great educational resource it's also an amazing community. Uh, you know, if you're part of the council, you can actually work on developing legislation around full cost accounting. You can work with other businesses and other leaders in studying these issues, as well as drafting legislation that ultimately will get proposed uh, to the legislature, either federally or in some cases at a state. So I would encourage people to check out the website just for the educational purposes alone. But of course, we're always looking for new members. Uh, we're, we're still way outnumbered by the Chamber of Commerce. Mm. Uh, so this is the, the sort of alternative Chamber of Commerce, if you like. 
I was going to ask you about the chambers of commerce and those entities around, you know, the national level and, and otherwise. I think the mindset for too long has been business thinking, how can we get government to do things that are good for us, narrowly defined. It's time, I think, for business to step up as citizens and say, how do we partner to craft the right kinds of policies that are going to move us all uh, in the right direction? And there will be a business uh, benefit from that, but that's not, that's not where it ends. And I think that's a real major shift. And I'm really grateful for the work that you and the council do to provide an alternative forum for businesses to direct those energies. Well, it's a unique opportunity. It's incredibly fulfilling. It's inspiring. And uh, thanks to both of you for giving me the opportunity to share a little bit of my story and uh, to invite people along with me on that journey uh, because we can use all the help we can get. Uh, so many, many, many thanks. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Well, very inspiring to have you and thank you for your time. And thank you for our listeners. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Conscious Capitalists. If you did, then whatever channel you're listening to us on, please hit the subscribe button or go over to Apple Podcasts or to Spotify and leave us uh, a comment and hopefully a good rating. And if you want to leave some direct comments for Raj and I, then please go to theconsciouscapitalists.com. And on that podcast site, you will see a little box at the bottom where you can leave us a note. And we always like to thank our producer, Carla Viegas. Thank you, Carla, for helping us get this done each week. And Raj, if people wanted to know more about conscious capitalism, what might they do to do that? They can go to consciouscapitalism.org and uh, find a chapter near them or create a new chapter if one doesn't exist. And, uh, and just join the community of like-minded uh, business leaders and thinkers who are very much aligned with what Jeffrey shared with us today. Wonderful. Thank you.